Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 30 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, this week was a week of milestones for me and this podcast, really. The podcast exceeded 100,000 downloads this past Monday. I didn't check, but I think it's pushing like 103 or 104 now. But um, and also, I recorded the special guest episode with Dina Mose that's coming up next as my 30th podcast episode. And this is an exciting moment for me. I've been working on this since January. I completed the first draft of my book on Friday. Yay! And it's now being read for editing by two awesome people who I want to give a shout out to now for their help with this. Um, Julie McCown, my good friend, and Christopher Kakiu-Lebeau, um, who is also a Bright Dawn Buddhist lay minister and uh, who has his own sangha in Salt Lake City, Utah, Salt Lake uh, Buddhist Fellowship. Um, and Julie McCown also is the author of Iris and Lily, a three-part novel that she wrote with her sister. So really awesome people working on this uh, editing for me. And then the next step after we clear these two eagle eye readers um, will be final editing, layout, and publishing. And I'm pretty excited. So then let's move on to this episode. In this episode, you'll join me in a conversation with Dina Mose, a Hollywood-born, Yale-educated midwife with a Bachelor of Arts in Literature, a Master of Science in Nursing. Her book, The Buddha Sat Right Here, A Family Odyssey Through India and Nepal, is a memoir of adventure, motherhood, and love woven into a spiritual journey. Dina's writing has been published in The Daily Beast, Ravishly, Midwifery Today, The Mindful World, Grown and Flown, and The Wisdom Daily. I know you'll delight in Dina's easy conversation style as much as you will her writing when you get her book, because I'm sure you're going to run out and do that after you hear our conversation. As you will hear in the conversation coming up, we had some laughs, we talked deep Buddhist philosophy, we talked the difference between the Indian and U.S. cultures, the awesome experiences of being in the presence of accomplished Tibetan Buddhist teachers, including His Holy, Holiness the Dalai Lama, which Dina, who Dina met when, when she was in Dharamsala. So without any more introduction, I'm going to go to the episode a conversation we recorded with Dina, and there'll be another little introduction there too. Today, I'm excited to talk with ver a very special guest, Dina Mose, the author of The Buddha Sat Right Here, the story of her family's odyssey through India and Nepal. I have to admit, you know, when Dina's publicist first reached out to me back in February, which was prior to the book's publication date in April, 
I wasn't really sure I was even going to read this book. The opening line in the email was, quote, in 2014, exhausted mother Dina Mose threw off her supermom cape, full-time job, after-school dance classes for the kids, dinner on the table, etc., etc., to begin a bold spiritual adventure, unquote. You know, when I read that, I was thinking it was much more about a mom breaking free, and this was really going to be about moms talking to other moms, and it wasn't going to be something that would speak to this particular podcast audience. But the email went on to explain how Dina and her husband are Buddhists, and they took their young girls out of school and traveled for eight months through India and Nepal. At this point, I'm intrigued, and I'm saying to myself, why in the world would they do such a thing? So now, if for nothing else but curiosity, I'm interested in this book. And I'm going to share something about being a podcast host. People who write books and their publicists reach out with offers to send galleys and review copies all the time. So for someone like me who loves to read and has an insatiable curiosity, there's, this is like a perk, almost too good to be true. So most times I answer, sure, I'll take a look at the book. Of course, it just adds way too much reading that I can get that I could get done in a reasonable amount of time and get back to them and schedule a podcast if I was even interested. But in this case, the email went on to explain how the Moe's family trip was inspired by Dina's desire to connect to the places where the Buddha lived and taught and to immerse themselves in Tibetan, Indian, and Nepali cultures, and to expand their understanding of what it means to be Buddhist and live a spiritual life. And they also talked about how she met with Vajrayana teachers. So for me, coming from a Vajrayana practitioner background, I'm very interested. So I'm getting pretty close to convinced that at least I'm going to read this book. But the clincher was her publicist sent me a link to Dina's website, and I read what was there in her blog page. The blog page was titled, Sort of a Blog, and I was hooked. She was my kind of writer, funny, real, in your face. So I wrote back to her publicist and said, yeah, send me a review copy now. I'm very interested. So fast forward to today, after reading her book twice, I am, you know, kind of a fangirl for Dina because of her writing, because of what her writing reveals about her integrity, her warmth, her humor, and most importantly for this podcast, because of what her writing demonstrated about how she brought Buddhist teachings and practices into her every day and didn't keep them siloed away for retreats or even special pilgrimage time. So anyone who has traveled to India or Nepal will absolutely love this book. Anyone who wants to travel to India or Nepal will love this book. And anyone who travels, especially those who travel with young children, will love this book. And guess what? Those of you who aren't travels, travelers will love this book too. I am not a traveler. And I loved this book. Although admittedly, I loved it for many things other than the travel sense of it. It was as much about real life, personal and relationship discoveries, as it was spiritual and travel discoveries. 
And this is what I hope to share in our conversation today. And oh, by the way, at the risk of taking even more time in this introduction, the Buddha sat right here. The book is the winner of multiple book awards. Number one, the gold medal in travel essay, 2019 Indie Publishers Award, a first place Indie Book Awards winner for travel, Next Generation, and the International Book Award winner in Eastern religion. All those awards are very well deserved. I can't remember a book that has delighted me, engaged me, taught me, and made me laugh all at the same time, frequently in the same page, paragraph, and sometimes in the same sentence. Dina is a wonderful writer whose writing is described as magical, and I wholeheartedly agree. So, Dina, welcome to the Everyday Buddhism Podcast. I am honored to have you join me for a conversation. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. So, Dina, I'm going to ask you personally that first question I had about your family trip when I read your publicist's email. You know, why in the world would they do such a thing? Why, Dina, really, why? If an exhausted supermom wants to escape the stress of jobs, kids, cooking, wouldn't hauling everyone across the, across the world for nine months make you even more exhausted? I was exhausted just thinking about it. So what's the deal? Well, it was this exhausted supermom's bucket list dream to take that kind of trip. And I decided I didn't want to wait until my kids were grown to do it, since there are really no guarantees about the future anyway. And um, I just really craved the experience of breaking all the routines that seemed to have sort of pinned me down into this lifestyle that I was not crazy about. So taking my family traveling, while it was a lot of work, um, I was so inspired to do it, and I was so fired up about our vision of going to India and Nepal and to live among the Tibetan refugee communities and visit the sacred places where the Buddha lived and taught and sat under a tree. Um, that inspiration really carried me. And when I'm excited about a project, the exhaustion disappears. That's the perfect explanation. I get that. I don't think I get it enough that I would have done it, but I get it. Um, I don't, I don't want to give too much away about, you know, there are some plot twists in the book and some revelations. So I'm not going to give a lot of it away. I'm not going to give any of it away if I can help it. Um, but Despite my initial incredulousness, your family trip to India and Nepal was in sort of in character or in the adventurous character of your family, or at least you. Um, but I read that you, you know, in the book, you talked about how you traveled every summer together, um, not this long, of course, had a family band, went to Burning Man festivals, and on and on. So it really struck me as a wonderful gift you and your husband Adam gave your girls. It, it's a gift and a heritage that will arm them for success in life despite any life's challenges. Have you seen how that has changed them? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, that is the other piece 
was that we wanted to give the girls this experience because they had lived, we call it the California bubble. You know, we live in Northern California in this sweet little college town. And um, there's a very particular lifestyle and they hadn't really gotten outside of that to see the rest of the world. And also um, in this small Northern California town, there's not a lot of Buddhists. And the Buddhist community is very small. And my husband and I are very, you know, devoted Buddhist practitioners. And the kids kind of grew up thinking, gosh, mom and dad do this weird thing that other kids' parents don't really do. And to go to India and Nepal where they could see, you know, how many people in the world are Hindu and Buddhist and and you know, spiritual speakers and there's sadhus and holy men and lamas and monks. Um, it really allowed them to be connected to the global community of Buddhists in a really powerful way. And it, it really, really affected them profoundly. My eldest daughter, she, um, she went off to college last fall. And before she went, she sat for her first 10-day Vipassana retreat. And she did that the two weeks before college started. And I was so proud of her. That was the choice that she made. And, um, you know, both girls, you know, now they know what Buddhism is. And they've met teachers. And they, they just have a larger perspective of spiritual possibilities in the world. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and actually, I saw you could see that even sort of the beginnings of that, because in your book, you take entries from your eldest daughter, Bella's diary or journal. And there were so many, first of all, cute things that were in those entries, but also very profound. Um, by, by the way, um, your daughter is a great writer, too, and a, a wonderful observer of life. And, and it, it seemed like she really, many, many times you could just tell she, she, she just got it. She, she just totally got it. Uh, and, and I was so impressed by those entries. I, and it, also, I think it was a, a stroke of genius for you to, to share those. I wonder how she felt about that. She was awesome about it. She, when I decided to write this book after we got back from our trip and we were just kind of trying to get back to normal life and I couldn't stop thinking about everything that had happened to us on our journey and started toying with the idea of writing a book, she actually handed me over her diary. And she said, here, mom, you can use this as however you like to piece together details. You can use excerpts. You can do whatever you want. And um, I decided to put excerpts in because her voice it was just so fresh and funny, and um, it just created a nice contrast to my voice throughout the narrative. And so I was so thrilled to have have those in there. She's very gracious about it. Well, that was um, that's, that's neat that she. I mean, even in some of the things where she admitted that she had fallen in love with some of the <laughs> of the young boys. That help. <laughs> Yeah, um, she may come to regret that, but um, it was wonderful to read that. It was, you're right, it was totally refreshing. I got so I looked forward to her little entries. So that was great. So, as I mentioned in introducing you in the book, for many reasons, I'm not a traveler. I am an armchair traveler, and I think that t today 
you know, the world comes to our door, you know, through the internet, travel shows and documentaries, like even your book. Um, you know, I have a, a public Facebook group and a, and a virtual sangha um, that I started, sprung off from this podcast. And, you know, I meet millions, not millions, thousands, thousands of people all over the world through Facebook who want to friend me and many in Nepal and India and Tibet. And it's just, uh, it's, 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 it's awesome really. Um, so, you know, I, you do have to travel, I think to really get the experience, but it's wonderful to be able to get the experience, even if you're not a travel traveler. But you know what, one thing I wanted to share with you and I, and one thing I wanted to share with the podcast audience by reading a little bit from Dina's book is because I'm not a traveler, I've always sort of shamefully identified with what you wrote about how you sense that maybe the Tibetans took pity on us instead of us taking pity on them for living in sort of hard conditions. And, and they, in fact, were taking pity on us for um, kind of a different thing for our material comforts. I'm going to read a little sense of this. According to Buddhist teachings, people born into material luxury tend to squander their lives away, worrying about protecting and seeking to increase material gains, none of which lasts or come with us when we die. We bring only our karma, the energetic results of our actions, into the future. I almost sense that the Tibetans took pity on us Westerners, who easily fall apart without our excessive material comforts. Our reliance on our abundance of things makes it hard for us to understand that things do not actually cause happiness. My Tibetan friends often reminded me that people in the West suffer too. It's just a different kind of suffering. Boy, you really mm. nailed that with that passage, I think. Uh, do you have anything more mm -hmm. to say? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot to say about that. Um, there's just so much to say. I mean, first of all, you know, when we arrived in India as this California family, um, just trying to slip into the culture and live like the people there live and follow the norms of the culture and just be within, immersed in the community. One of the things um, I noticed and my kids noticed right away was that People, even if people don't have a lot, there seemed to be a sense of contentment when people had their spiritual life and their communities, um, you know, richly around them. And that it, it wasn't material things, it, that there's deeper things like spiritual traditions, family connections, a sense of place and heritage and culture that uh, money can't buy. And my daughters picked up on this right away. And then, you know, when I was living up in Dharamsala, that's, that's when I wrote that passage. I was also thinking a lot about, you know, Western privilege and white privilege and how, um, you know, tricky it is to be a pilgrim in India who knows that if, when we get tired enough and cranky enough, we can 
whip out our passports and get on a plane and come back to the United States to the Amer to all the comforts that we have here. And so I was acutely aware of that. And what was interesting is that when I tried to talk about that with my Tibetan Buddhist friends, they really just laughed and said, well, you know, you were born in the West in this life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have white privilege this life. You're not taking that with you either, my uh, friend. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And that was just such a, you know, that was just such a mind-opening moment for me because, you know, I held on to this identity like, oh, I'm a privileged white person in India. But in India, they saw me like, yeah, you're a white privileged this, this time around. And look at you, you know, how hard it is for you to be comfortable when it's so hot and the bus ride is so long and crowded. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, that you know that is it's awesome that you. It, it's like it, it takes away our sense of surety. Certainly, um, even though those of us who practice Buddhism understand this concept, to have it hit at that level is is an entirely different thing, right? Exactly, and then the reminder is don't squander our white privilege. You know, like yeah. we are in this very privileged position right now in this life you know where we have money and we have movement we can travel if we want we can stay home if we want and again you know the buddhist inquiry is so what are we going to do with that life what are we going to how are we going to use our privilege to benefit beings and that's what i've been working with since i've gotten back Wow, that well, that could lead us to a whole other discussion. Like, in what way are you working with that? But I'd like to get a little more into the book. But yeah, that's like maybe we'll have a part two, okay, and talk about how. Okay, that. sure thing. Um, but you know that that's absolutely true. You know that kept that it kept coming back as a theme too. This was clearly on your mind. It was working within you. You know, I could I could almost feel it as it kept emerging as a theme throughout your book sort of that contrast between the way we live here or the way we live as our privileged white Americans, right? And the way of life in India uh, or, or, you know, Nepal. And, and th that's, that's something I also think a lot about even as an armchair traveler. Early in the book, I highlighted a couple of sense sentences that stood out. Uh, I highlighted this, the quote, the overarching feeling in India is of life, not death. The country is teeming with children, thriving, even though no one hovers over them with hand sanitizer and baby wipes in case they touch anything, unquote. And, <laughs> and, and this is, you see, you're laughing at your own work. I'm telling you, you're funny. Um, but uh, this is coming from uh, from a midwife, so you certainly know. But that that those two sentences shouted the contrast for me between our two worlds. Yet, as travelers in their world, you and your family met discomfort head on with frequent episodes of sickness and conditions that made me cringe reading about them. I can barely stand twenty four hours without electricity when the power goes out. So. The big question I have to ask you, you said you're working before for, you know, to benefit all beings from your white privileged status, but after your journey, are you now 
more comfortable with discomfort and lack of control? Ooh, great question. Um, you know, I almost named the book uh, what my little India travel motto was, which was relax. Absolutely nothing is under control. Uh, yes, I actually and, saw uh, that on your website, and that's always been one of my favorite, like, memes. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, that was almost the name of the book. Um, yes, most definitely. Uh, getting out of my routines of, you know, raising children and driving around, getting everybody to their activities and, you know, planning a three-course dinner you know, organic dinner every night, working, etc. Breaking out of all those routines and traveling through a place that really throws everything sort of up, up on its, it sort of upends everything, all the assumptions that we have about life and community. India is just such a different kind of culture and place. Um, yeah, I really learned to surrender control. That That is definitely one of the themes that came through my journey over time in India and this feeling of letting go and being more accepting with what is and not always trying to meet some kind of expectation that is maybe a false expectation that I've pulled from, you know, comparing myself to other mothers or, you know, certain cultural, you know, the sort of advertising consumer culture we're so immersed in here in the United States and get down to the roots of what really matters within a family, which is connection, which is hearing each other, which is being present for each other. So when I came back from India, there was a lot less structures, activities, um, things planned way in advance and more time to just kind of be together. And that that really helped my mental state. And I think it's just a healthier way to live. Yeah, that's an excellent answer. And, you know, you, you just <clears throat> touched on like three or two at least major Buddhist teachings about, you know, being aware of what is, you know, what it's happening now. And, you know, let's face it, you know, the second noble truth <clears throat> that the Buddha taught was that the reason we, we are discontent or dissatisfied or have dukkha is that uh, it's because we're grabbing on to grabbing at or grasping at something, uh, something we want we don't have or something we want to get rid of that we do have. So, you know, you, you know, you're the teachings mm -hmm. life in, in your story, uh, and, you know, and yeah, yeah it, it amazes um, me too how that all got woven in there without you making it so obvious. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Our culture here in the United States, I mean, everything about the culture supports that kind of grasping and desiring. I mean, capitalism runs on desire, Absolutely. you know, desire for more things. And um, you go to a place in India and people just don't have a lot of things. You know, they're just not available. So what are they doing instead? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's so true. Boy, we could, that's another whole tangent we could get on, which I'd love to. Um, we got a lot setting <laughs> up for part two here. But another theme, though, that captured my attention was 
the and this is a theme that I I'm thinking you have coming reoccurring throughout the book is the contrast between the way families and couples live and the way children are raised. You know, in India, extended families live together. You know, they have cooks and all that seemed pretty cool to me too. And it, and it seems kids are raised by like everyone. It's kind of like the old, you know, Hillary Clinton, it takes a village thing. It was like, they, well, that's, they didn't have to think about that. They, that's what, that's how they do it there. And yet, you know, we're all, we're these isolated little kingdoms, you know, family-dums, you know, two people in a house. And then no wonder it's so crazy is because we're all trying to do everything and all trying to do everything according to those expectations we were talking about. So another big question I have to ask is now that you've been back for five years, does that still feel like the way things should be? The way things should be that we should be in a more extended family, families, yeah. communities. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that was a major epiphany I had in India is that, um, and there's so much being written right now about modern motherhood and the isolation and the anxiety and overwhelm of working mothers in our culture. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly because our model of, okay, one woman does everything and her man helps her. Um, it's not sustainable and it's not even normal in the world. Like you think that's how things are. Then you go to a place like India and you see, oh my gosh, this household has six adults, <laughs> two children. Uh -huh. that's, that's a great ratio. You know, even if mom is working, someone's home cooking, someone's taking the kids somewhere. It's not all on her. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was a huge awakening for me and and it really gave me a lot of feeling of self-forgiveness for you know yeah the struggles that I had had as a lonely isolated working mother before we went to India and definitely something that I still hold as you know as a as a goal that our culture really needs to shift to support families and I think it is I mean honestly I'm thinking that with you know, the cost of housing soaring and things are getting just harder, um, that it'll start making people stay together. It'll, it'll keep families more together. It'll keep extended families more together. And, um, I, I hope, I mean, I hope you're right that I hope that's, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure I'm as positive and hopeful as you are. Um, but I, I, um, not that I'm a total cynic, but I hope that is sort of where the evolution is taking us, you know, coming, um, I'm 66 years old and I'm coming at this on the other side of things, I guess you'd say sort of the other, uh, a generation away maybe. And, you know, we've just gone through, um, having my mother-in-law go into assisted living and so many times through all of that, when she was living alone and when we were trying to figure out how to deal with everything, um, with her and dementia and, um, it, it, I, I, I couldn't stop thinking that, you know, we really need, we should have all been together. This, this stuff wouldn't happen if we were all together. I mean, not that they wouldn't get, oh, yeah. but at least you'd be with them through the whole thing and you wouldn't have to hurry up and trying to figure out how am I going to deal with this? You know, um, because we're not, we're not, and also feeling guilty about everything that you do. 
you know, there's that too. So I see it from a, that side of it too. And I think it, it just points to the same problem. Yep, definitely. Another thing, uh, and this is more of another little Buddhist teaching you, you gave without knowing it probably, or maybe you did. Um, what, what I felt from the way you describe this sort of culture the family culture of six, you know, adults living in a house with two children was the, it was that the people in India lived with sort of almost the complete incorporation of interdependence as a reality. You know, we talk about mm-hmm. it as a spiritual concept, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a philosophical, um, concept and, and or it's a teaching and we're trying to understand it but I keep thinking that in the West particularly here in the US our refuge you know our security is is comfort and a misguided sense mm-hmm. that we can control everything and always I sensed your awareness in your the way you wrote of this tension between the spiritual and the everyday and that the spiritual is found in the everyday beyond our comfort and control. Like you wrote, and I, I, I quoted this out is of all the places we would go in India, Bogdaya was one of the most impoverished and at the same time, the most holy India teaches me. And this is, was uh, uh, highlighted in your book. India teaches me again and again, that the categories into which I like to neatly divide things don't hold up, unquote. You know, I know we can't sum, sum it up all in a sentence, but what was your primary teaching from the pilgrimage? You already hinted at that, that like not being able to control everything was one of them. And, and that sort of was talking about putting everything in neat little boxes. What would you say your primary teaching or primary teachings were? Ooh, that is a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I know, and you might not be able to. That's okay. So, <laughs> there's just so many. Um, well, so being in Bodh Gaya is a very special experience. Um, in case listeners don't know, Bodh Gaya means the place of awakening, and it's the place where the Buddha sat under a tree until he awakened to enlightenment. And that site is this beautiful World Heritage site today. It's a park and there's this huge, it's called the Mahabodhi Temple. It's this tower that's carved. And all day long, every day, hundreds, thousands of Buddhist pilgrims from all over the world descend on the park and spend the day there the Tibetans are doing their 100,000 prostrations. The Koreans are chanting. The, um, you know, Theravadan forest monks from Burma are there. On and on. And it's just this huge melting pot of Buddhists from all over the world. And everyone's sharing the space. And um, being there was incredibly powerful for our family. We spent two weeks there. And that was towards the beginning of our trip. Um, To get there, you have to travel into one of the poorest states in India, and just outside the gates of the park, there are beggars, and there's very impoverished uh, neighborhoods of the surrounding village. And so that stark contrast um, is, is confronting. 
And um, there, I mean, there's just so much to tell about that, which is why there's a the long section of it in the book. Um, and we met, you know, different spiritual teachers from so many different lineages there. And we had dinner every night at this uh, Tibetan restaurant where we could talk with people. Um, the overarching feeling, even with all of that going on, and it's so busy and bustling and international, the feeling of reverence yeah. and peace is so incredible. And um, that just, it just moves. It just moves you like you don't even have you don't have to believe anything. You don't have to belong to a particular lineage. But if you go to a place like that and you're just surrounded by that much devotion and intention, um, everyone there is praying for peace. Everyone there is, is chanting their sutras and their mantras. Everyone there is bowing to the Buddha. The power of that much collective devotion, it transforms you. It's it's very beautiful. Wow. And, and um, I'm sorry, I keep going. No, go, go ahead. <laughs> and then that's yeah. a perfect lead into what I, I wanted to talk about is, you know, you mentioned three key words. It's um, um, devotion, intention, you know, um, uh, mm -hmm. and the rituals, um, all those things done with pure sincerity, not like because someone else is doing it kind of it's they've they're grown up with it it means it means everything to them and i realize that i am well more than somewhat prejudiced by my you know 20 plus year background in buddhist study and practice with much of it being in the tibetan tradition but i love how you did that interweaving of the teachings that you got from different lamas and you know wandering sadhus and rituals and everything else buddhist and hindu and every and every other kind of tradition that you found there even uh, sikh um <clears throat> and, and as you may have guessed from the name of my podcast although i bring many years of study and practice from the tibetan tradition i really try to share most most, if not all of the teachings in the episodes of my podcast, uh, it, through a focus or a lens of how you can incorporate them in the everyday so that <clears throat> they become real to you and not like um, something you read in a book. Because I believe, truly, you need to live the teachings like those people do. And we don't here, but you need to live the teachings to really understand them. But even so, I believe many of my listeners come from what they may classify as a secular background. You know, I'm not quite sure. Or they're even suspicious about Buddhism as a religion or anything that looks like religion or something that's, you know, woo-woo spiritual. But I love how you let the two sides of Buddhism, if you will, sort of the philosophical and psychological and the ritual spiritual play out you know i'm going to read i'm going to mm -hmm. read a couple passages that i think illustrate the way you do this beautifully as a writer for example in a in a passage describing your time in um little lhasa um the home of his dalai Na, his holiness the dalai lama and the tibetan government in exile you quoted from your lamas or i think it was both of your lama is that chamtru rinpoche is that your lama Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, who you studied with when you were there, 
And um, you described his, you described how he described his teachings as, quote, you don't have to take my word for it. Follow the reasoning. It is logic, unquote. And this is something I find true every time. And I, I actually repeat it like a mantra in my podcast. But then you'll contrast that with what you wrote about your experience, which uh, meeting His Holiness. Um, uh, and here's, here's actually your description of meeting His Holiness. You, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, His Holiness, <laughs> yes. the Dalai Lama. Um, so uh, he looked into my eyes. Tashi Dalit guy stuttered the traditional Tibetan greeting, holding up the kata. He took my hand in his hand and he asked, how are you? I felt the expanse of his love wash through me, beyond me, filling all the space in the universe and answered him by bursting into tears. I knew in that moment that the Buddhist words, the vows, the poetry about love and compassion were not pat slogans not pretty sayings, that infinite love is real, and I witnessed it fully present in a living, breathing human. You know, there's a tension between those two things as logic and what you just wrote about there. How, how do you describe that tension to maybe like the people you run across in your small town who have no clue? You know, how, how, how does that make sense? How do you rationalize it? I try to do it all the time in this podcast. You tell me how you do it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, oh, that's also a really hard question. I would say that, you know, when we were studying with Chongchul Rinpoche, we were diving deep into the philosophical context of Buddhism, uh, such as, I think that um, the teachings on interdependent origination, mm -hmm. and if you do study Buddhist philosophy, um, even the law of karma, cause and effect, um, at the most basic level, uh, Buddhist philosophy is very logical. Yes. And in fact, even the Buddha himself said, you know, don't take anything on blind faith examine it with your own mind, examine your own mind mm. and, you know, do your own practice. And so when we were with Chongchul Rinpoche, um, who's also gives off those beautiful vibrations of love and compassion, um, we were studying and, and for example, the um, concept of emptiness is something that I've been sort of working with philosophically for many years trying to understand, you know, that word, even the word emptiness, it's not a quite the right translation. There really isn't anything in English that exactly matches that concept, I think, in Buddhist philosophy, in Vajrayana and Mahayana philosophy. But, um, you know, he, he took us there, you know, and he showed us Logically, and that, and that, again, of course, is part of interdependent origination, that nothing exists. Nothing is self-existing on its own. So it is logic, philosophy. And so, you know, that's, that's one piece of who we are as people. And then on the other hand, there's the heart part of us as people, you know, the feelings, the emotional parts of us. And that 
is what was really activated when I met the Dalai Lama because I wasn't asking about philosophy. He wasn't giving a lecture or a teaching. He just came over and, and stood before me. And his, the energy of his unconditional love, I could just feel it. And it, it just melted me. It was so powerful. And it was so heartening. And I guess when you say, you know, what was your most important pilgrimage moment? I would prob I would have to answer it's when I met the Dalai Lama. Because just like I say in the book, all the teachings, all the philosophy, all the logic, all the, you know, books I've read, everything that describes this thing, and then you experience it. And then that is the moment where you understand it truly. Because you're not just understanding it intellectually. You're understanding it with your whole being, your body, your heart. And when I met the Dalai Lama, I had that experience. And it was incredible. Yeah. You know, what you're saying is, is so true. And I've experienced it too, even though I talk a lot in dry philosophy and trying to explain how how logical it all is you know how emptiness is not empty but it's actually how what gives you a possibility of everything um mm -hmm. but but the thing the thing is is that it's, if you're around these great teachers who practice the way they have you, you, there's there's a whole different experience and i loved how you wrote about your interactions with the tibetan monks and nuns and how they proved you know that the teachings that the dharma they're not just repeated words but living realities you you wrote yeah the thing that i love and you know you wrote how you would ask leading questions um trying to get them to show some anger or resentment towards the chinese um, yes. Um, I I have to read that part because it's so good. If you don't mind me quoting you all the time, uh, I asked them leading questions, trying to provoke an emission of anger towards the Chinese. I could not elicit any. I thought about how we in the West hold on to our anger and resentment like they are precious gifts. We are victims. These feelings are our right. The monks explain that holding on to anger is like holding a hot coal in your hand with the intent of throwing it at someone. You are the one who gets burned. But from them, this was not just a saying. It was who they were, all the way to their bones. You know, that's so true, isn't it? And I felt a similar mm -hmm. feeling you described in your meeting with the Dalai Lama when I was in the presence of one of my refuge teachers, um, the Drikun Kagyu. Lama, His Eminence Garchen Rinpoche. I don't know if you've heard of him. He, there was a movie about him for the benefit of all beings. Oh, yeah. I yeah. definitely have heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my refuge teachers. And I had that, I, every time I was in his presence or teaching with him, I had that feeling, that loving presence of, of being right in the sort of the energy field of a radiating bodhisattva. And um, mm -hmm. his, he, his whole being spoke to that same lack of anger at the Chinese. And he was imprisoned by the Chinese for 20 years. He had no anger. And he talked frequently about how he would help um, Islamic uh, prisoners in, in, in prison with them, 
with the, with the Tibetans, he would help protect them so that they could say um, their prayers throughout the day. You know, he would help them guide, uh, you know, guard the guards from seeing them when they were doing their prostrations. You know, these to me are the demonstrations that the Dharma is completely transformative. But if you practice it, if you take it into your heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why teachers are so important. We need our teachers. There's There's so much you can read in a book. Yeah. And then you need to go and meet a teacher because they're an example and they show you what it looks like to be a Dharma practitioner. And, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's so many similar stories from Chinese prisons. Uh, also, you know, these, these monks at Dharamsala I was talking to, they were telling a story of a Lama who had all the prison guards had become his students. (laughs) So, um, even, yeah, um, that they were so moved by his just calm presence in the, in the prison and so many stories like that. It's it's really incredible. Yeah. And when you hear these stories, you almost don't believe them because they seem so unreal because it's nothing that we, we have any experience of in our culture. You know, except right. for, and if someone left the milk out overnight, I get totally pissed off in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or leaves a stain in the sink that I got to clean up, for goodness sakes. What the heck? Yeah, I'm It's so good. Look at that. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so, so, Dina, I'd like to close our conversation by sharing two more teachings you received during your pilgrimage um, that were just striking to me see what a teacher you are in this book i don't know what you're doing now to, for the benefit of beings but this book does it um <laughs> one is from a sadhu you met in lapuna uh his name was rama uh and he he wrote um uh, okay at sunset international travel travelers hindu pilgrims and locals gathered on the beach this is on Lapuna Beach. One evening, an orange-robed sadhu named Rama approached Adam and me. He took each of our hands in one of his and talked to us in lilting English. He stared intently into our faces for several min- minutes as if he was reading our story in them. And then he told us, it is good you take your children to all the sacred pilgrimage sites, but the holiest pilgrimage site of all is home when you are loving each other. And then later on in the paragraph, you wrote, love, it is so simple, isn't it? But I had to cross the world and make my way to this cow paddy strewn jungle beach to get it. Um, <laughs> as we were talking about the leaving the milk out overnight. Absolutely. I mean, that's just amazing, that, that teaching uh, that you got you know, just standing mm-hmm. on the beach. <laughs> and and then the second one, and I think this is sort of the the theme of our episode today. And, um, and who knows, it might be the theme of your book. I don't know. That's sort of what I got from it. It was also from your Lama, Chantru Rinpoche. And he was speaking to you about true Dharma practice. You wrote, mm-hmm. at our last morning seminar, Chantru Rinpoche relaxed looking around the room and smiling at every one of us for the first time. I hadn't noticed he had dimples before. He had always seemed so stern. He admonished us to go home. 
and not to even consider running away to India to become Dharma bums. By the way, I'll interject. You actually had that thought. Um, So quote, he said, Oh yeah. (laughs) Go, go home to your jobs and your families. Dharma practice doesn't mean running away from your life. It means to be in your life, every challenge and obstacle an opportunity to develop more love, more compassion, more patience. Be benefit to your home com- communities. That's just beautiful. Oh, thanks for reminding me of this. <laughs> <laughs> you should go back and reread your book, Dina. You'll I think like I need it. to reread it. Yeah, you'll, <laughs> you'll like it a lot. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Dina, thank you. I mean, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. As I said in my intro, I'm a compl- intro. I'm a complete fan of your writing, and I look forward to whatever you might write next. But I'm, I'm- so touched by your um, enthusiastic response to my book. I I really appreciate that you gave it such close reading, and that you you know you were open to it. Um, it it really makes my heart full to talk with you today. Oh, it's thanks. been wonderful. Oh, thank you, Dina. And I do urge all my listeners to read this book, which I will link to on my website and probably in my promotions. It is a true adventure and can function as your own sort of spiritual pilgrimage at the end of a long day of work when you pick up the book again. I know I read it twice and kept finding nuggets. So thanks again, Dina. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I hope you found the conversation with Dina as fun, fascinating, and insightful as I did. And wait until you read her book. It's an experience you will look forward to and you will not want it to end. I guarantee it. You can find out more about Dina Mose at www.dinamose.com, which I will post that link on my website along with a link to her book. As usual, a big thank you to all of you who listen to this podcast, who email questions and suggestions, who contribute comments on one of my Facebook groups, and of course, everyone who donates to help keep the content written, produced, and distributed, and especially to those donating and contributing to our new Everyday Sangha. Please do consider supporting my work with the podcast, the Facebook discussion group, the book discussion group, and the Everyday Sangha. You can donate through a recurring or one-time donation at the Donate tab on my website, www.everyday-buddhism.com. Thanks again, and until next time, keep making your everydays better.